Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Last night and the game itself, Arizona and L.A., seems to me that game might be summed up in one clip from the very popular Manning cast. Let's go to Peyton. He's going to break down that touchdown. I can't hear Never mind. Peyton's doing something else. Great exchange, Goobs. Great exchange. Peyton Manning couldn't hear bleep. Can't hear he couldn't hear bleep. Can't hear and the Arizona Cardinals could not do bleep. Never mind. Never mind. Hey, listen. I think most of you know this is a huge Arizona Cardinals house. Nobody has banged the drum louder or harder for the Cardinals than yours truly. I've been on this team for a while now and took it to a whole new level this year. And then the bottom fell out completely. They started 7-0. They got to 10-2. They were the best team in the NFL. They were so good, they were winning games with Colt McCoy at quarterback. Then they imploded in the most epic fashion ever. They lost four of their last five heading into the playoffs. Then they got humiliated 34-11 to last night. I hate to say 34. it. 34-11. I hate to say it. I really do. But the more things change, the more they do stay exactly the same. Arizona imploded again. They were ill-prepared again. The moment and the stage were just too big for them. There's no getting around it. I'll admit it. When they were 7-0, when they were 10-2, I thought they were legit. I thought this was their season. I thought Kyler Murray was the MVP. I was wrong. Wrong. They have to own this catastrophe, and I have to own how hard I honked these guys this season. And don't get it twisted. That was not just one bad night. That was six bad weeks. Six really bad weeks. Down the stretch, they got blown out by Detroit. They lost to Seattle. Two teams whose seasons had ended months earlier, and the Cardinals lost to them. Win those games, you win the division. Lose those games... And then you've got to go on the road to start the playoffs. And then you get curb stomped in L.A. They went from looking like the best team in the league to looking like they did not belong in the playoffs. They looked and played like a seven seed. You know, just like those other slugs that had no business being in the playoffs improved it the second they hit the field for Super Wild Card Weekend. No names mentioned. Steelers. Eagles. Pressure bursts pipes. And the Cardinals were spraying all over the place in the first half. I mean, what a complete and thorough disaster. That whole we didn't have any playoff experience rap also does not hold water either. Neither did the Bengals, and they advanced. The Cardinals looked like they were caught in the headlights. And instead of doing something about it, they froze, and then they got run over backed over, and ultimately dragged by an 18-wheeler wearing blue and gold. At one point, the Rams were out gaining the cards 163 to negative 4. Another milestone was when the cards had run 15 plays for minus 1 total yards. The Rams were up 21-0 before the cards picked up their first down. Like, how the hell could a team that looked so good several weeks back play that horribly last night. Borderline erotic if you're a Rams fan. Borderline erotic. Borderline unwatchable if you're anybody else. Now, if you know this show, you know what I think about Kyler Murray. You know that I think that he is one of one. I think he's one of the most unique and dynamic athletes I've ever seen. Literally, ever. A guy who looked like he was going to rip the MVP award at the halfway point of this season. But he wasn't any of that last night. He wasn't anything at all last night, but frankly, awful. Odell Beckham Jr. had a better night passing it than Kyler Murray. The Carson Wentz comparisons were flying around Twitter, and they were painful, but they were accurate, such as on this play. Murray with time, pumps, pressures, collapsing, flips it out into the open field. It's intercepted. David Long Jr. scoops it up and takes it in. 
gets it in for a Rams touchdown. Westwood won on the call. You know what that was. That was a Carson Wentz special, but worse. Like, that might have been the worst pick six I've ever seen. And certainly at the worst possible time. Like, I know you're trying to make something happen. I know you're trying to kickstart the offense. I know you're at least trying to avoid a safety. (laughs) But you can't do that. You simply can't do that. You simply cannot do that. Wentz himself cannot believe how terrible that decision was. Now, I know the Rams' pass rush is nasty, but you got to know that going in, right? And it seemed like Murray either didn't know that or wasn't prepared for it because they weren't just in his face, they were in his head. And I know the broadcast crew made a point of saying that Kyler Murray, according to the coaches, had spent more time in the facility this week than at any point ever, which makes the whole thing even more bewildering. Like, I know the cards didn't have DeAndre Hopkins, but they haven't had DeAndre Hopkins for quite some time now. That was not a new development. That was something they had been trying to deal with, and in the end, they really couldn't. Now, that's not to say that Kyler Murray is a bust or a failure. He's neither of those things. But what he just got was an awful taste of playoff medicine. And to paraphrase a legendary quote, it tastes like a tire and it goes down like peanut butter. Reaching the playoffs is a success, but there is no glory in reaching the playoffs and then puking all over yourselves once you get there. Believe me, the Rams knew that. They went into last night knowing they had to win. Had to. Not just to advance, but to justify everything. Remember, we talked about this all season long. The Rams were all bleeping in. Every single chip to the center of the table. Everything they had to the center of the table. I mean, the deed to the house, the car keys, the cell phone. Every chip. Everything to the center of the table. You can't bring in Matthew Stafford, Vaughn Miller, Odell Beckham Jr., and then get bounced at home in the first round. L.A. knew that. And then L.A. went out, and they played like that. They played like the Rams that everybody had been expecting to see in the postseason. Weapons all over the field, mixing the pass and run, Sony Michelle pounding it. And I'll never not be amazed by the fact that Cam Akers is out there roughly a minute or two after shredding his Achilles And he had 95 yards from scrimmage. And how about Odell Beckham Jr.? Got to give it to the guy. Have to. Had a nice game. Another nice game. And this guy's just getting better and better and better and stronger. The pass rush got after Kyler Murray. Matthew Stafford made plays. Stafford did what he had to do to advance. All right? Why don't we talk about Stafford for a minute? You want to talk about pressure. You want to talk about a guy who had to have it. Now, I'm not saying that Stafford went legend last night. And Stafford is going to have to do more to beat Tampa Bay. But they didn't need him to do any more than he did last night. He did what he had to do, but nobody needed it worse than Stafford. The Rams gave up a ton to get him. They bet the house on this dude. And I'm not saying that one playoff win over an Arizona team that just crapped the bed secures his legacy. However, a playoff loss at home. Given all the weapons he had around him and given what was at stake, that would have wrecked this guy's legacy for sure. As much heat as Kyler Murray is getting today, and he deserves it, just go ahead and double that. No, triple that for Stafford if he doesn't get it done and the Rams get knocked out in their own house in the first round. So they absolutely had to have that game last night and Stafford himself needed it even more. Credit to Stafford, he got the monkey off his back, at least for a week. All right, I'm not saying that that win last night justifies everything they've done. I'm not saying that win last night clears Stafford. It bought them all another week. But they had to have it, and they got it done. Credit for that. As for the cards, it is going to be a long, nasty offseason where they're going to have to do some serious soul-searching. All of them but especially their head coach and their franchise quarterback. Because, and I say this as somebody who's got great respect for that team, I say this as somebody who's got great respect for that organization, but they could not have looked any less prepared or been humiliated any worse than they were last night. And unfortunately for them, the entire bleeping world saw it on the big stage. And yeah, that hurt me as much as it hurt them. But it hurt me to have to watch that especially given how hard I went for them. And I bought it. 
I'm not going to take it back, and I'm not going to apologize for it. It's 7-0, they look like that team. At 10-2, they look like that team. It looked like their year. And they crash catastrophically. So does this sound familiar? You've got one device that lets you catch the game live, another that lets you stream your favorite shows, you're watching sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbor's best friends log in for all the good stuff. Well, let me tell you about a very simple way to get all that entertainment that you love without all that hassle I'm talking about, and it's a great way to finally get your TV together. It's called Direct TV Stream, and it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before. So, you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. That means no more juggling remotes, no need to buy another device ever again, and the very best part... There is no annual contract, so get rid of the clutter and the confusion and get your TV together with DirecTV Stream. You can learn more at DirecTV.com. That's DirecTV.com. Compatible devices required. Content varies by package. Eric Armstead is my guest. Eric, it is so good to have you on. How are you? Good, man. Thank you for the amazing intro. Thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Listen, there are a lot of things I want to talk to you about, but why don't we start with the fact that you guys went on the road, you dealt with injuries, you still found a way to beat Dallas and advance. I want to ask you, what's it say about the team and its heart, its grit, and its attitude that's in that locker room to come through like that? Yeah, I think it's just our our culture. You know, I think we've been playing, you know, football, uh, playoff-level football for um, some, some weeks now. You know, we went through a lot of adversity throughout the year, um, ups and downs, you know, found ways to win ugly, um, found ways to, you know, overcome uh, a lot. And, you know, that's what we had to do uh, on Sunday as well. You know, the game didn't go exactly how we planned, but we found a way to win and, um, you know, move on. And so, you know, we're happy and we're excited uh, about this new week. Eric Armstead joining us. In other words, when you go through all those things, it kind of prepares you for the moment, and then you execute in that moment. I got to ask you, though, in the moment, like what was going through your head when Dak Prescott took off on that quarterback draw with 14 seconds left and no timeouts? Yeah, what was going through my head, I was kind of right there uh, standing up over the center, and you know, we were in our play call where um, you know, we're just trying to keep them in bounds. You know, they have no timeouts, and we know if they can't, you know, get some yards and get to the sideline, that um, you know they wouldn't have have much time to much time to do anything. And so, you know, I was kind of standing over the center and I seen them take off, you know, through the through the a gap. And um, I tried to go chase them, and you know, he, he got some yards. And then um, I saw him, you know, them trying to hurry up, get on the ball, and uh, saw the ref. And then I realized like the ref has to you know, touch the ball first and, and, and mark the spot. And, um, you know, time ran out. And once I seen the clock hit zero, you know, I was uh, ecstatic. And I know everyone was super happy. So just uh, it was a crazy, you know, last play. And, um, you know, glad things went our way. I'm sort of chuckling about that because you said it yourself. You knew. You knew the ref had to touch the ball first. But for some reason, they didn't seem to know. Like, did you know immediately – that they were going to run out of time before they could clock it, or was that still in doubt to you? Um, you know, in in the moment, you know, I didn't know 100% sure. I wasn't 100% sure that they were going to run out of time, you know. Um, but, you know, I knew it was going to be close, and, um, you know, it's it's hard. I don't know the analytics on it, but they say it's tough to tough to do that and, and get everyone uh, set up that, you know, it, it usually won't, won't work out that way. Um, you know, it didn't work out for them, and, you know, I'm, we were definitely happy about that. Eric Armstead joining us. You know, you had a sack, and you led the team in pressures for a second straight game. I'm curious, what's it mean to you personally to have been as dominant as you have been in the last two games with the season on the line? In other words, to be at your very best when it matters most. Yeah, that's just what I want to be. You know, my best when my best is needed. Um, you know, I'm a, a captain on this team. Uh, I love being a part of this team. Um, I love playing alongside of these guys, and, you know, I don't want our season to end. You know, I want to keep making memories uh, with with my brothers. I want to keep, you know, taking the field with them. And, um, you know, that's something I talk about, you know, especially with, you know, the rest of my D linemen is that, um, you know, let's keep this going. Let's play for one another. Um, let's be our best uh, so we can, you know, keep, keep this going and keep this journey going and, um, you know, fighting and 
scratching and calling, trying to get to a Super Bowl and, and win a Super Bowl. So, um, you know, that's that's everything that's on my mind right now. You know, I would imagine, Eric, you can only speak from experience, but what you say, I mean, I can hear it. I can hear the passion. I can hear the how emphatic you are that I love these guys. This is a brotherhood. We're playing for each other. We're putting it all out there for each other. Is it always like that? I mean, I have to assume that not every single team has the kind of thing you're talking about. And then if you do have that, how much more is that worth on the field? Uh, it's huge. You know, some years I've had it, some years um, stronger than others. And, um, you know, this is definitely one of these years uh, where everything is coming together. And, you know, we're closer than we've ever been um, as a team and as a unit, you know, the unit I'm part of. I feel like we've we've grown closer throughout the year. Uh, we've added some pieces, and you know they're all coming together now. Guys are playing, you know, great football. Um, we're we're happy for each other's success, and uh, you know it's contagious. Um, you know when when guys are are making plays, flying around, and and uh, you can see the effort and you know the intent. You know it's contagious. It, it goes to goes to. Uh, the rest of your teammates, and uh, everyone's able to feed off of it. And now a message from Discover about rewards. If you're a loyal credit card customer, you should be rewarded for your loyalty, preferably with something that is useful, you know, like cashback match. Discover matches all the cash back that you have earned at the end of your first year. Finally, rewards that make sense. Discover. Exceptionally common sense. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations do apply. Eric Armstead is joining us. Eric, so let me ask you this. If you've got that kind of thing and you feel that strongly about the guy next to you and you play for each other, what was your reaction when Nick Bosa went down on Sunday and then how much changed when you were playing without him given how much he means to what you guys do? Yeah, you know, Nick is a huge part of huge part of what we do and um you know I was on the field you know when he got hurt two years ago and um that was a scary terrible feeling for all of us and so you know in the moment we were all thinking um you know just praying that he would he would be okay and you know once he popped up and uh gave gave his dad the thumbs up uh that he was okay um you know it it was a huge relief for us and you know we didn't have him for the rest of the game but um you know we've been through a lot this year as a team Guys have had to step up. Um, I believe in, you know, our unit as a whole. I know Nick does too. And uh, so I'm sure he, he wasn't even worried. Um, he knew that, you know, the rest of rest of our guys would pick up uh, where he left off and continue to play good football, you know, which we did. And I'm really proud of, of the guys um, who don't get as much credit as well. Um, you know, I really, really look at it as, you know, not ones and twos, but we're a unit that goes and, and, and attacks together. We're talking to Eric Armstead for a few more moments. You know, I mentioned the launching of the Eric Armstead Academy. As part of that and so many other things that you do off the field, DJ Jones, Fred Warner, and your family were all part of the surprise announcement that you were the team's Walter Payton Man of the Year nominee once again. In fact, DJ and Fred were talking about how much you inspire them. Fred, who I think everybody has absolutely immense respect for, even seemed to be getting emotional as he talked about it. What does all of this and that honor mean to you? Yeah, you know, it, it, um, you know, football has brought us together, but you know, this is way bigger than football. You know, the relationships you build um, in this game, the the teammates you have, the memories you make, the times in in the locker room, the times, um, you know, just hanging out. You know, those are, those are those are the things you're going to remember uh, forever. You may you may forget, you know, some games here and there. You'll remember the big games, but you'll never forget the people and the relationships you build. And, um, you know, the relationships are special. Um, and, you know, a moment like that, them saying that I inspire them is uh, was an amazing feeling for me. And, you know, it's, it's really what it's all about is us inspiring, inspiring others to be better, you know, not only football players, but better people, better uh, brothers, better husbands, better um, just men in general. And, you know, I'm really, really happy to be, uh, you know, teammates with those guys. That is the best stuff. And that's why you are once again the team's nominee for the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award. So really quickly, we're a couple of days out from you taking on Green Bay. An incredible matchup once again. You did face them back in week three. You lost a heartbreaker as a D lineman. How do you go about stopping or limiting Aaron Rodgers, who frankly, Eric, at 37, looks as good as he's ever looked? Yeah, you know, they have a great team. Uh, high power offense, obviously number one seed 
in our in our conference for a reason, and um, you know it's going to it's going to definitely be a challenge. Um, I think we we know them well. You know, fortunately, we've played them a bunch over the past few years, and uh, so it's going to come down to execution, uh, doing your job and at a high level, and um, you know, getting those timely stops and getting the ball back to our offense so they can do what they do. And you know, we have a challenge on our hands, but I think we're up for it. Really, and really quickly, finally, what about they seem like they're getting uh, they're getting healthier on the offensive line. Obviously, a lot of this is going to matter about what goes on in the trenches. What about that battle within, the battle in the trenches? How does that match up this time around? How does it feel to you? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it. You know, um, you know times, times like this, um, you know, in these important games uh, in football in general, especially playoff football, you know, it really starts up front. And, uh, you know, we're going to have a challenge on our hands with, with those guys. And, um, you know, I wouldn't want to go into that with any other group than, than I'm a part of. And, uh, you know, I'm excited for it, and, and I know we're ready. You know, it's like it's always said, Eric, right? You have to deal with them, but they also have to deal with you. It's a great matchup. San Francisco is at Green Bay. He had another great year. He's the 49ers. Walter Payton, Man of the Year nominee for a second straight year. Eric, I really appreciate the conversation, as always. Good to have you back on the show. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Good luck this weekend. Appreciate you, man. Great talking to you. Are you craving some protein after a good workout? Don't make a shake or eat a bar. Grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper instead. Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender. It's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. And it goes wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you are buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. And if you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? I've had the chance to sleep on it twice. But what's happening is I keep waking up in the middle of the night, laughing my ass off and turning to Dodger Jano and saying, hey, 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 DJ, wake up. Tell me something. And she's like, well, what's going on? Are you all right? Are you all right? Is it Logan? What's going on? I'm like, no, it's not Logan. It's Mike McCarthy. The hell was he thinking? She's like, you woke me up to ask me that? I said, yes. Who else am I going to ask? What was he thinking, DJ, on this play? Prescott takes the shotgun snap. He's going to run around left guard. Prescott slides inside the 25, but there's eight <laughs> seconds left in counting. They scurry up to the line of scrimmage, down to two, down to one. It's down to zeros. What will they say here? San Francisco onto the field with the coaching staff and the sideline players. They think it's over. Well, the umpire had, had a hard time getting that spotted because there's bodies going everywhere, and he got knocked around a little bit. That's the end of the game. Yeah, it is. They could not get the snap off because they struggled to get it set. The Cowboys are beside themselves. But that's the I don't know how many times I've seen that play, and yet it's still awesome. In fact... Every time I see it, it gets better and better. And even though we spent a ton of time on this yesterday, I still have so many questions. So many thoughts and so many questions about that play. I mean, did the big fella really sign off on a quarterback draw with 14 seconds left and no timeouts? And then did the same big fella really try to justify that after the game by saying that it was the right call, that his team practices that play all the time? and that it was the refs who screwed it up and not them. We shouldn't have had any problem getting the ball spotted there. Is that the quote you're looking for? Yeah, actually, he did say that. He did blame it on the refs. He sure as hell did. Yes to all of that. He was good with the call in the moment. He was good with the call even after that meltdown. And he was delusional enough to say that it was the refs who were the problem, not the play call, not the execution. And yet somehow, through it all, he is still employed as the Dallas Cowboys head coach. He took an alleged Super Bowl contender and wrapped it right around a tree. This was supposed to be the team. All the pieces were supposedly in place. This was supposed to be the year they not only got to the Super Bowl, but they won the Super Bowl. And this dude couldn't even win one playoff game at home. Yet his job is safe, allegedly. Because in the aftermath of that game, even Jarrah himself, 
didn't want to talk about it. I don't even want to discuss anything like that at this particular time. No discussion. Remember, this is the guy who has hired some of the worst head coaches ever. This is the same guy who let Jason Garrett stay effectively as long as he wanted. Yet in the aftermath of that game, even Jera, and I'm not even concerned or sure how badly Jera wants to win or lose. If he wants to win as much as he wants people to look at him and talk about him and give money to him. Yet even after that game, he seemed kind of beside himself and didn't want to get into it. I'm not going to discuss uh, coaching, the preparation, any of those things. That's not, uh, that's not on the table. Uh, the game speaks for itself. I'll tell you what. Right. The game does speak for itself. The game speaks for itself, which is why McCarthy's status is in doubt, or at least he's being asked about it. Because when the game speaks for itself, what the game is saying, actually, what the game is screaming from the rooftops is, fire me, fire me, because I blew the game at the end, and because of all the other stupid little crap that happened during the game. Like the 14 penalties and that stupid fake after the fake punt. The game speaks for itself. If the game speaks for itself, the game is saying, fire me. And don't tell me the refs were out to get the Cowboys with those 14 flags. They weren't. The Cowboys were the most penalized team in the NFL in the regular season. 14 flags on Sunday was not unusual. It was S. O-P. S-O-P-U-B-M. Standard Operating Procedure under Big Mikey. The whole game was horrible discipline, horrible clock management, and finding a way to lose. You know, the entire Mike McCarthy experience. This is exactly what J.J. signed up for after that sleepover. So why change right now? But the thing is, at least according to Stephen Jones, they're not going to change right now. He was asked about it on 105.3 The Fan. He was asked about his confidence in the big fella leading the team into the future. I don't know what you can say, what you want to say, but are you of the belief or are you confident that Mike McCarthy will continue to lead this team next season? Absolutely. Very confident. (laughs) absolutely very confident in which case i am absolutely very confident you got to get your dome examined if the goal is to win a super bowl why are you keeping this guy around because you love that sweet 18 and 15 record in the regular season because you love the fact that he's barely over 500 despite playing in a horrible division He's coached in a division that had Joe Judge, the imploding Doug Peterson, and a Washington football team that's had about a billion different quarterbacks, and he is still barely above 500. The only team the Cardinals beat down the stretch was the Cowboys in their house. But you still want to keep McCarthy. Dallas was playing at home in the playoffs and fell behind by two scores in the first half. Pretty tough to get shut out for the first 25 minutes of a playoff game and hope to win. And if the 49ers have been able to capitalize in that second half, then that game's a blowout. The only reason McCarthy and the Cowboys even had the chance to call that moronic play was because Jimmy G jumped the gun and snapped it too early with 40 seconds left. If he's a hair more patient, that game's already over. And maybe that would have been a better thing for Dallas and McCarthy, honestly. They still would have lost that game, but at least they wouldn't have shown their ass with that quarterback draw. Honestly, it would have been better to lose that game than to lose that game on that call, right? Like, how do you watch Sunday's game and not at least entertain the notion of a change of head coach? I mean, I'm not trying to get anybody fired, but look at this guy. Look at the numbers. Look at how they lose games. I said it almost the entire year. This guy's going to cost them in a playoff game, and that's exactly what happened. So how do you watch Sunday's game and not say the whole is less than the sum of the parts, and that's on the head coach? Then again, 
If the goal was to win a Super Bowl, they would have never had Big Mike at the sleepover in the first place. He's 10-9 and in the postseason. He managed to win one Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers, the greatest quarterback of a generation. Don't get me wrong. I know winning is hard. Winning in the postseason is even harder. But you know what's tougher than winning in the postseason? Winning in the postseason with Mike McCarthy as your head coach. There's a real good chance that D coordinator Dan Quinn becomes a head coach in the next few days or weeks. There's also a chance Kellen Moore follows suit, despite the fact that he's apparently the rocket scientist who called that draw in the first place. So what that would mean, though, if that happens, you're going to stick with Big Mike and then possibly get two new coordinators. But you're not going to consider making a change to head coach. Hilarious. Almost as hilarious as the quarterback draw call itself. You know what winning with McCarthy is like? It's like trying to run the 100 with a parachute strapped to your back. Hell, it's like running the 100 with Mike McCarthy strapped to your back. You could be Usain Bolt, Tyson Gay, and Carl Lewis all rolled into one. But you're not getting out of the starting blocks with Big Mike draped over your shoulders. A quarterback draw with no timeouts. That is too funny. It's going to be hard for me to get a good night of sleep for the rest of the week, maybe the rest of the month. DJ, DJ, Jano, get up. What, what, what? Are you having a bad dream? No, I'm just dreaming about Mike McCarthy. I can't stop thinking about McCarthy again. Jimmo's. This has to stop. I know, right? But I can't. It's just funnier and funnier every night. It keeps waking me up. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show. Hey, you want a new podcast to look forward to every single week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content. Of course you do. The average podcast listener has six shows in rotation, so you're most likely not just listening to the Daily Jungle or the Jim Rome podcast. And that's totally fine. In fact, let me suggest a podcast that you should add to your list. It's the Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-shelf podcast named Best of Apple in 2018. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, hostage negotiators, and more. Harbinger has got this incredible talent for getting his guests to share never-been-heard-before stories and thought-provoking insights. Without fail, he is able to pull out tactical bits of wisdom in every single episode, all with the noble cause to make you a more informed, critical thinker to better operate in today's complicated world. What I'm saying is, Jordan is one of the goats when it comes to podcasting, and he has got one of the most highly rated self-development shows out there right now. Point blank, this dude is smart, he's funny, he is easy to listen to. You will find actionable advice that can improve your life directly. You cannot go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It is incredibly interesting. There is never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Dorian Finney-Smith is my guest. Dorian, good to have you back. How are you? Yes, sir. How are you doing? Good, dude. How about you? I'm doing good. Just got out of practice. Good. All right. Well, I appreciate you making time for me. So you had your 11th career double-double last night. I'm curious about that. First off, did you know before the game you had something special in you, or maybe did you kind of find your rhythm as the game got going? Yeah. Um, I, um, uh, the 15th was my brother's birthday, so um, we played. We had a game that day, and uh, – I feel like I ain't play play as good as I wanted to, you know, because you know I always want to play good on his birthday. So I just uh, I was just happy to have that bounce back game. All right then, so you bounce back. You made that right. You know when you and I yeah. spoke but back, it, in... it, we still won though. So regardless, I take the win, even though I ain't play good on the 15th. You know, you know it. We I know still that. Won, That's the know? thing. I got that. I see how you are. So when you and I talked back in May, 
We talked about your journey in the NBA and the fact that early in your career, you had a reputation for being a defensive stopper, but now you're averaging career highs in points and field goal attempts. You're putting up double-digit points nearly every single night. How proud are you of the fact that you're now impacting the game at both ends of the floor at a high level? Um, it feels good, but it also feels good, you know, when you know Coach Kidd telling me, you know, when I get the ball off the, you know, off the uh, glass, they don't look for Luca and JV to push it up, you know, push it up the court myself, and um, you know, to be aggressive. So, you know, that feels good, you know, knowing that you know the coaching staff see all the work I put in, and they trust me with making more plays and doing more on the offense end. You talk about a guy known for pushing the ball up the court. You're talking about Jason Kidd. So in addition to that, it's got to feel great that the coach is telling you, be aggressive, take care of business, we have faith in you. Overall, what's it been like to play for Jason Kidd so far? It's been it's been amazing, man. Just uh, you know, uh, just knowing that, that he's one of the, the best passes uh, that to, to, to ever play, and um, you know how you see the game. You know, most most of our plays now is off reads. It's not really you know too many you know sets. It's really off reads. You know, it will be running the same play the whole game, but it's just different reads, and you know we just you know take whatever the defense gives us. And I think that that's going to translate to playoff basketball. Dorian Finney-Smith is joining us. You know, you said something recently that I thought was pretty interesting. And you were talking about when you weren't knocking down your shots, you still felt really good about things. You said, quote, I know I can shoot. I wasn't getting the results I wanted, but my mechanics were good. I just had mm-hmm. to get my legs up underneath me and shoot with confidence. Like, how important is it to trust the work that you've put in and not stop doing it and not give up on that? You know, sometimes when you start missing shots, you you start looking at your, you know, mechanics, trying to tweak all these little stuff. But it, it really just be, like I said, mental. You know, um, you know, we all, everybody go through shooting slumps. You know, um, I remember Clay Thompson went through a shooting slump. People like Clay go through a shooting slump. <laughs> right. And then, you know, who am I to think that I ain't going to ever, you know, have bad shooting games. You know what I'm saying? So you just got to keep, you know, Keep, I try to be the same person every day, but if you take your your mind off shooting, you know, and focus on something else, and it, it usually it usually be the best times, you know, the the best shooting games when you focus on, you know, playing defense or being more active. That's me. You know, I, I try to focus on being active. Yeah, I think that's I think that's awesome what you just said. Like Clay Thompson goes through a shooting slump, so who am I to think that I'm not going to have one if Clay has one and he, when he's one of the best ever? Yeah, it was a couple of years ago, but yeah. Yeah, but he did, right? Yeah. Dorian Finney-Smith is joining us. I think that's awesome. So let me ask you about Luca. He had another triple double last night. Forty-one, dude, for his career. He struggled a little bit from the field, but he still went twelve or fourteen from the line. You've played alongside this guy for a while now. Does this guy do anything ever that surprises you at this point, or have you pretty much just gotten used to all of it? No, I've been getting used to it, but he still found me on a pass or something that I, I, I'm like, dang, I should be ready to shoot it, you know, just because you think, you know, you don't think he see you, but he see you. <laughs> just little stuff like that, and um, you know, we got that chemistry where you know, if I ain't got no shots, he'll look at me and I'm like, bro, I'm about to get you a shot, and he'll tell me to shoot as soon as I touch it. So it just you know, when, when the best player on the team trusts you like that, you know, that feels good. You know, you, you want to go get a stop. It makes you want to go get a stop, you know. Yeah, by the way, you guys get a lot of stops. As a team, you're third in the league and fewest points allowed. But during that run, you've won nine of your last ten, and you're playing even better defense. You've held multiple teams under 90. Nearly impossible to do in this era of basketball. So what's the secret to the team's defensive success? Um, I would say uh, just – Everybody, everybody's been locked in. You know, Luca, KP, uh, you know, Matt, C, Reggie, Tim. Everybody been locked in on the defense end. JB, um, you know, me. I'm just trying to be vocal and you know, um, and just and just and just try to help everybody any way I can. You know, uh, but uh, Coach Sweeney been doing a good job of you know uh, scouting guys and you know his defensive scheme been been, been amazing for us. You know, everybody, the COVID kind of beats everybody down, but I want to make the point. Your team has played really well of late, especially given that 11 different guys had COVID in December and early January. How have you and everybody dealt with that and maintained this great team chemistry despite all the different changes in the roster and really never knowing day-to-day who's going to be up? 
Yeah, it was it was tricky. You know, um, I remember J. Kidd um, saying um, when when the first couple guys caught COVID, he was like, you know, it's starting to be whoever you know the healthiest team, <laughs> you know, gonna be in the best position at the end of the year. You know what I'm saying? So uh, when he said that, it just kind of it just put things in perspective. As you know, we got to figure out a way. You know, we got to figure out a way to you know get some wins until the guys get back. And um. I think, I think with that energy that that we had, you know, when guys were out, you know, um, I think that kind of sparked the team. And um, you know, when when players got back, it just kept it going. You know, um, and now I think we're on a nice little roll. You know, um, even though we ain't, we still ain't even making shots like we want to. You know, Tim ain't even shooting the ball like he, you know, like he do, and, and Luca ain't even making shots like he do. So you know, when guys start heating up and we still defending. No, I think we're going to be really scary in the postseason. Dorian Finney-Smith joining us. So you're in your sixth sixth season now. Guys who go undrafted normally do not show up in the league and immediately play 81 games as a rookie. You did that. Guys who go yeah. undrafted normally don't last six years in the league. You've done that. You're still mm-hmm. getting better and more effective and more valuable. How do you explain what you've been able to accomplish, and then what does that part of it mean to you? Um, I just knew when I came in, I knew defense was going to get me on the court. So, um, you know, that's all I was focusing on was, you know, just, you know, find a way to get on the court, you know, and, and, and impact the game. And if I made threes, you know, that was a plus, you know. But each year I just wanted to keep, you know, keep getting better, you know, keep getting better. You know, I, I ended up switching my shot. And my three-point percentage ain't really changed, you know. That, like I said, I went through that mental change where my mechanics was right, but, you know, I won't get the results I wanted. And then I just stuck with it, and I've been a little bit more consistent these past two, three years, and you now we're here today. You know, um, you know, I feel like I belong. You know, I always felt like I belong. You know, that's one thing. I always had the confidence that I, I ain't scared of nobody, and I belong here. I like this conversation. I always like it when you and I get together because it's always real. It's always authentic. So let me be real for a minute. Like, you've created value. Value for yourself, value for yes, other teams. Sir. You know what that means, right? Your name's going to come up in rumors about trades, which is flattering mm-hmm. because it shows that other teams know what you can do and feel like you can make them better. It's always going to be a part of the business. So have yeah. you heard about that? And then if you hear the rumors, what do you do with them? How do you handle that? Man, I'm, I don't listen to nothing, man. I, I'm with my family all the time, with the kids. They don't know nothing about no rumors. <laughs> Yeah, so anybody that's around me, I don't even want to hear it. Cause if it ain't if it ain't in black and white, then I don't even want to hear it. Oh, man. I, I dude, I love that. Black. By the way, I respect that so much. I appreciate that so much. If it's not in black and white, I don't want to hear it. And if it's not going to make things better, I don't want to hear it either. We don't need to worry yeah. about that, right? I'm with my family. I'm with my kids. I'm with my team. I'm with my. I'm worrying about things that I can control. That's what you're telling me. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I ain't. I can't do nothing. If I get traded in or anything, then I do. But I worry about that when it happens. That's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. So when you look at the season, you guys, one last thought. You had a team. You had a 2 nothing lead in the playoffs. Things went the mm-hmm. wrong way against the Clippers. I know you took that hard. As a true mm-hmm. leader, you put a lot of that in yourself. How did that fuel you in the offseason? What did you learn from that? How did you approach that? Um, It, it, it hurts because um, – you know, especially in them games, I feel like we lost. I feel like I ain't played well. I ain't played as well as I should. Especially, I remember that first home game in Dallas. That, you know, um, I think we all wanted to get a win in the playoffs. You know, for for Dallas, but we didn't. So, um, you know, I think I took the challenge this summer. You know, just wanted to elevate my game. You know, be a little bit more, you know, effective out there on the court, and not just be, you know. And letting guys, you know, trap off me and and go, you know, uh, trap Luca and trap KP. The flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. That book drops today. Chris Herring is my guest. Chris, good to have you back. How are you? Jim, how are you, man? I'm, I'm doing great. I appreciate you having me on. You, It's great to have you on. It's a big day for you. I know this. Now, you and I have talked about the book in the past, and I've been looking forward to it coming out, as I just mentioned. Before we get to the book itself, Spike Lee already got his copy, and he posted about it on social media, and then he called you to talk about it. I'm curious, what was that conversation like, and then what did that conversation mean to you personally? Um, 
I'm still not quite back on the ground yet. Uh, I'm still floating a little bit just from all that. Um, yeah, two-hour conversation with him the day after he read it. He read it the day he got it. He finished it that day. And the Knicks had a game that day, so he had other stuff he was doing. Um, just incredible. And he, I mean, he had all sorts of questions for me. He was like, how did you know this? How did, you know, he was intrigued by certain things, uh, stuff that he didn't even necessarily know sometimes that just surreal. Um, I was sitting courtside with him yesterday. He's like, you know, we've become best buddies since he read this book. Wow. Um, he, he, it was just kind of incredible and not something that I pictured when I wrote this book. Very cool. Very cool. So you start the book with Pat Riley, Xavier McDaniel, Anthony Mason, and the first practice of Riley's tenure as a Nick. What was that practice like and what was the culture and the attitude that Riley was looking to develop? I mean, it was just a, a blisteringly hot day inside of a gym that had no air conditioning, really. Um, so, you you know, if you've ever played sports, there's always kind of that atmosphere that just makes it even more of kind of an agitating sort of feel. Um, you know, it was a fighting sort of day. And uh, Riley had them working up a big sweat, had them running with their arms raised so that you wouldn't be able, they wouldn't be able to breathe as freely because they're, you know, their abdomens are just kind of stretched straight up in the air. So people are already kind of in an agitated mood and then they start doing a box out drill, which kind of invites guys to just rough each other up going for rebounds. And um, Xavier McDaniel essentially was tripping guys as they were on the way up for rebounds so that he could grab them instead. And uh, Mason warned him once not to do it again. And the second time he did it, he said, okay, I warned you. And he just slugged uh, Xavier McDaniel in the face. Xavier McDaniel is not a soft guy by any means. So he fought back. And so that was 15 minutes into the first practice with Riley as the Knicks coach. It immediately set a tone. And uh, it was also a day where Pat Riley told them that that was the tone he wanted them to have, is that he wanted them to be a fighting sort of team, that he wanted them to essentially try to take on what the Pistons had started um, as far as their physicality with the bad boys, that he felt like that was the best way for the Knicks to go forward, that they didn't have a Showtime sort of roster, obviously, and that he wanted them to basically, he basically felt the Pistons were aging out and the Knicks were the team that could kind of best fill that void to try to compete with the Bulls who were going to be there every year. Chris Herring is joining us. His new book, Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks, is out right now. Now, you want to talk about setting a tone. Early on on his, on his time, or in his time with the team, Riley fired a popular basketball operations employee. When he talked to the team about it, he said, quote, sometimes in a situation you have to shoot a hostage in the head and then look around and say, who the bleep is next, end of quote. I mean, what an amazing story. What does that tell you about the way he was approaching the job? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think he, he basically, everything about Riley, to a fault, I would say, and that comes up in the book multiple times, is that you're either in or you're out. And so I don't know, you know, I've never really asked too many questions around why the person was let go, um, you know, or even exactly the name of who it was. But the fact that he was so adamant about that, I think he was sending the message right there that, like, if you guys miss the person so much, then go be with them. You could be off the team, too. That was essentially what he was saying. And he did that so many times and would test guys' loyalty so often. There's an anecdote that I've got later on in the book where he – um he overhears Dave Checkets, the team president, talking with Checkets, his wife, on the phone. And she's out buying a family car, a Chevy Suburban, asking Dave Checkets, what color would you like? Are you okay with the color green, forest green? And Checkets says, fine, I'm fine with green. Riley can overhear it. And Riley tells him, no, like, what, are you kidding me? She can't get a green car, Dave. And Dave looks at him and says, why not? He says, because green represents the Celtics. Right. And obviously we know Riley's sister is the Celtics from the Lakers. Checkett starts laughing, but Riley is completely serious. And then, so Checkett tells his wife, no, green won't work. Uh, what else they got? She says, okay, red. And Riley reacts even more strongly to that because he's like, we're in the Eastern Conference. Red represents the Bulls. Like, we, we just, that's not going to fly. And so he's dead serious about that. So Checkett tells his wife to just get a blue Suburban because that's all that Riley would be okay with. So that, that's the inner out mentality that I'm talking about. And it comes up several times in the book with Mason, even with Rolando Blackman in a moment that might have changed the course of history for the next. We're talking to Chris Herring. It's amazing. Now, I could follow you and ask you about the course of history changing 
issue that you mentioned with Blackman. That would be my job as the talk show host, but you said Mason <laughs> first, and I'm always so intrigued and fascinated by all things Anthony Mason. There's so many great stories about him in the book, from the first practice to playing one-on-one with his junior high school-age son. Which one, in your opinion, best sums up Mason's approach when it comes to basketball? I do think that that's one of them, uh, the one with the son, where it's just kind of take no prisoners, um, that you're not even going to let your son off the hook. Your, his son's graduation day. You know, he's playing one-on-one with him, and he basically takes his son out of the sky with the clothesline. Uh, so that's one that, that stands out to me. Another one really is, uh, you know, I kind of highlight a moment where he basically cusses out his college coach on senior night. And he does it because he, his mom was in town for the one and only time down at Tennessee State. She made the trip from New York. It was not a family that had much money. So it was a big deal for him to have her there. And um, he gets taken out of a game after making a really sloppy turnover on a play where he's trying to be fancy. He cusses the coach out. And, you know, okay, a lot of people cuss coaches out. But then I have an anecdote later in the book about him essentially issuing a death threat to Don Nelson after a game via a, a note that he left on Nelson's desk while he was talking to the media. So I, I, I think the idea of challenging Don Nelson and the, and the idea behind the note was like, if you ever effing take me out of a game again, you know, essentially I'm going to kill you. Um, and so he, he always had problems with being taken out of games. For, for the record, by the way, Don Nelson was playing Anthony Mason more than any player in the league <laughs> that year. He led the league in minutes that year, and that was a death threat for saying if you take me out, like he wasn't taking you out for the most part. He played 38 minutes that night. But uh, Mason was wound tight, was very emotional. He, he was very layered, too. I mean, he, there was a notorious side to him, obviously. I don't shy away from that in the book, but he had a sensitivity to him as well. He was just a really, to me, he was the most interesting player of that era. Riley was the most interesting person of that era with that team. Really interesting. I love talking to Mason back in the day, and you couldn't get him all the time, but if you can get him, I know exactly what you're talking about. He was so interesting. This book is called Blood in the Garden, the Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks. The book is out right now. Chris Herring is the author. He is my guest. You know, there's so many iconic moments in that book. Let me ask you about the game where, obviously, in the playoffs, John Starks missed a potential game-winning shot. Starks gets off to a rough start in Game 7, and the question was, maybe you were talking about this, why Riley sticks with him instead of going with Rolando Blackman? How would you answer that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's part of the dilemma there, is that, look, Rolando Blackman didn't play at all in that series, so it's very easy to say that, he just didn't play. Riley didn't see him as a good fit for that series. Um, some people would disagree with that. I thought it was very interesting that the Rockets that I interviewed for the book disagreed with that because they played against Rolando in that division when he was a member of the Mavericks several times. Rolando's best scoring average against any team came against the Rockets, so he's kind of a Rockets killer. And Scott Brooks in particular from the bench was saying we were just praying he wouldn't bring Rolando in because he, we never had an answer for him. So the, the thing that the Knicks players told me, and Rolando said it as well, is that he had gotten into an argument with Pat Riley two and a half weeks before Game 7, uh, that he essentially asked, Pat, can we bring our wives to the finals? Because this is a crowning achievement for so many of us. We've never made it this far before. None of us have won a championship. It's been a long season. You know, Keep in mind, the Knicks at that point had played the longest postseason in NBA history uh, by the time they got to Game 7. They played 25 games in that postseason, which was the longest in history at that point. So Pat said no uh, to Rolando's request. You know, Rolando was a respected veteran. He'd been an all-star four times before. He would retire after that season. And so the players were kind of shocked at how short Riley was with his response to Rolando. And Rolando shot back. And he was like, I, I don't understand why we can't bring why Why wouldn't we be able to? It's been a great season for us. They've held down our household in most cases. You know, we never asked for them to be able to travel anywhere else, but this is different. Can can they come? And Riley again said no, and he, he could tell that uh, you could tell that Riley was frustrated by him even asking the question again in front of the group. Um, and so some people, there there are at least three or four of them. A couple of people kind of sent me off to a doc, and Derek Harper both kind of said you're going to have to ask Rolando exactly what happened, but he's got reason to be upset with Pat to this day, as far as they were concerned. So the players have wondered for a while whether Pat took that out on him by not using him in a Game 7 situation. Um, and I don't think that's the whole reason. I mean, Starks had been on fire that series. Uh, he had shot basically 50%, 45% from three from Games 2 to 6. So it's feasible that, you know, he had had double-digit fourth quarters in Games 4, 5, and 6. 
it's completely feasible that Pat just thought that John was his best option. But even if you were going to put Rolando or somebody else in for two, three minutes, just to give John a breather to let him compose himself when he's missed so many shots in a row, all of 11 from three, um, it's feasible that he could have gone to Rolando and just didn't because it was frustrated with him. And some of the Knicks players do believe that that, that was the case. Amazing. Chris Herring joining us. So, Chris, at one point, Riley had the team, and I'm just kind of bouncing around a little bit right here, but Riley had a team playing reroute to Reno, and he gave them ten grand to gamble with. How did that go down <laughs> with the players, and then what was the fallout from that move between Riley and the organization? Sure. Well, he, he did it thinking that, you know, they had been in a four-game rut. They'd lost four games in a row. They, their offense was just horrible, even by their standards, which they didn't have a great offense to begin with. So they were about to go to Sacramento, I believe, and right as the plane was taking off, Riley essentially sent his secretary, his team secretary, traveling secretary, to go up to the pilot and ask if they could reroute the plane somewhere else. And they were trying to figure out where it would have a long enough runway for them to do it and picked Reno because he wanted for them to be able to just gamble and kind of let their hair down a little bit to get their mind off of the losing streak. Because Pat, in his mind, you always push harder. You practice harder until you get it right. Um, so this was an instance where he couldn't really fathom pushing them any harder than he already had. So they go gambling. He pulls $10,000 of his own money out of his pocket to put forward for chips, 500 for each player. And uh, <laughs> Starks goes through his allotment right away. He, he burns through all 500 of it right away. Um, but he was what he was trying to do, he was about to kind of change the starting lineup. He was about to pull three of his starters and put them on the bench and then put three guys from his bench into the starting lineup, including Starks and Charles Smith, who were his number two and number three scorers on that team. So it was a big shift to be doing that, and he does it. But the Knicks go from a four-game losing streak to immediately winning that game in Sacramento and each of the next 14 after. So they went on a 15-game winning streak. The irony, though, uh, as you asked that, is that it might have played some role in sort of unraveling Pat's relationship with the Knicks, though, because, again, he was completely in or out but the team never really paid him back the 10 that he wanted to be reimbursed basically for something that turned the team around. And they said, yeah, that's fine. We can understand that. We'll, we'll pay you back. They, they never got around to doing it because they couldn't figure out the excuse I got was that they couldn't figure out how to expense it for a publicly traded company that had a bunch of shareholders. Like how do you explain $10,000 worth of gambling money for, for millionaires uh, was kind of the way that they were framing that. And Pat got extremely frustrated about it. And he actually raised it with the, the person that would become the owner of the team a few months later. So it was very strange, but he, you know, I was told that he essentially never got over that. The Knicks have told me that he essentially never got over that flight, never being paid back. He was very much a nickel and dime guy for how wealthy he was. I was going to say, Chris, I don't know what's more unbelievable to me, that the team would risk alienating a legend like that over ten grand, or that a guy like that would be that upset over ten grand. He he had a $300 per day request for per diem. Now, he... he asked Mickey Arison, or at least he had his arranger ask Mickey Arison for $50 million over 10 years. Um, that was what he wanted in addition to the ownership stake and everything else. But he, within that, and then Mickey Arison actually called this out when he was looking at Riley's contract demands, he wanted a $300 per day per diem, despite the fact that Mickey Arison was buying his home in Los Angeles and New York, despite the fact that he was essentially signing off 20% of ownership, 10% immediately and 10% in the future, despite the fact that he was, he was asking Mickey Harrison for a loan to cover the taxes he was going to have to pay on the ownership stake, he, he asked for a $300 per day per diem. Insane. And Mickey Harrison said, how the hell are you asking me <laughs> when I'm already doing all this other stuff for you? Credit cards, a limo to and from every game. But that's how Pat was. He, I mean, he also asked for the Knicks to cover his dry cleaning. Uh, when he took the job there, they said no to that. But, I mean, he, he was someone – he didn't grow up wealthy at all. And so he was someone that, uh, that you know, was going to kind of take everything that he could get. And he didn't stop trying to do that um, when he was leaving the Knicks or when he was joining, my, joining Miami. And we could do this for hours and hours and hours, and I'm already in much longer than I need to be. But I have to ask you one last thing. I, what about sure. Pat, uh, Patrick Ewing? Like – he had his relationship with his teammates, but I'm really curious about his relationship with the Knicks fans because he was the only superstar for years with the Knicks, but you'd be hard-pressed to say that he was a fan favorite. Why was that, and is it something that bothered him? 
Yeah, no, it, it absolutely bothered him. And I, I tried to get into it a little bit toward, you know, he, he was one of the last chapters in the book, which normally you write about the superstar early. I thought he was in more of a transformational period towards the end of his career, in part because of the relationship with the fans and the, the fact that he felt like he was kind of underappreciated. The fact that really Starks, Mason, and Oakley, and multiple people told me this, you almost kind of get the impression that fans, the way fans love them, you would have thought their numbers were in the rafters. When in reality, Ewing is the only guy that that's true of. Every one of those other guys, they wore their heart on their sleeve. Oakley was diving into the stands every night. Starks, you know, was wildly emotional for good and bad. Mason was wired the same way, hearts on their sleeves. Ewing was kind of more to himself. Uh, some of that was by design with the media. Um, and some of it was just kind of the way he was raised and the way he came up. Um, so I think that was a big, big part of it. I mean, the thing was, he put in the sweat equity maybe more than anybody. He played through all sorts of injuries. He was, you know, wearing all of the weight on his shoulders um, from a scoring standpoint, from being the franchise star for essentially 15 years, the first six of which he had, what was it, six coaches and four general managers, which is why he wanted to leave the Knicks before Pat Riley got there. So I, I just think he didn't really have the ability to show some of that emotion the way that those other guys did. And you did get the impression that he wasn't the most popular. Everyone knew he was the best player, but he wasn't the most popular player with the fans. Uh, Oakley, Starks, and Mason kind of seemed to maybe take that cake. And uh, it, it, it definitely seemed to wear on him, especially when talk radio was really coming into play during some of those years. And it was just a conversation piece for people to be able to bring up all the time. Now, this book is out today, and this is why we've been talking about this book for several months leading up to today. The book is called Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. It is now out. He is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, co-host of Open Floor SBSI's NBA show, Chris Herring. Chris, congratulations. The book is absolutely amazing. Great to have you on the show. Very well done. I could listen to that all day. You and I could talk for several more hours. In fact, from me to you, that will not be our last conversation about that book. Thank you so much for that. And again, Congrats. Thanks so much, Jim. I really appreciate you. Good night.